0: Come in, in every single situation, in every single area of our lives, so amen. that you can be our everything, God. So, Lord, as amen. we sit down, I just pray we will just hear word from you and have an encounter with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, good morning. While everyone is uh, returning to their seats from up here, you might want to turn to uh, Luke, chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 13 to 39. It's page 1047 in the Red Pew Bible. Also, thanks for the really great water bottle. It says Eastern Nazarene on it. My kids will probably confiscate it for me. And those of you who are going to help the people in need with cleaning houses, um, if you would like to help us out later on, we live in Ipswich, I'll come pick you up. And uh, because our house is always domestically challenged. And uh, though we don't have a great need uh, that is born out of hardship, we just have five kids in one house. And uh, so it's uh, kind of a lot, uh, but um, we enjoy it. Today I'm going to tell you some of my story uh, in the context of this passage from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And um, my story is that as a young man, um, I became a Christian... Uh, really at age 14, um, through the evangelical preaching of Leighton Ford. But I had a, an awakening to Jesus when I was about six years old in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I'm an immigrant and learned English in the United States and lived in an immigrant neighborhood in Milwaukee. Um, and my family grew up with a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain and sorrow, uh, which I perceived in my childhood home growing up. And um, uh, and that affected me pretty profoundly uh, and one of the things that happened is that I kind of detached from a lot in life but mostly from my own dad for some good reasons because he was kind of nasty at times and um, and then as I came into my teenage years I noticed that my sexual attractions were toward guys not girls um, and this is in the early 1970s so it's a long time ago um, but I also had an awakening to Jesus around the same time that my sexuality was coming to the fore. And I found that very confusing. Uh, So in this passage from the Gospel, I'd like to weave my story into that and share with you how God led me um, so that eventually I did marry, although that's not the goal of any uh, journey. uh, But I did marry and um, ended up having five children. So let's look at the passage Um, Let me give you an overview of the passage. Two people, Cleopas, and they don't name who the person is, but it's probably his wife, are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile journey. And Cleopas and his wife have been um, following Jesus uh, for quite a while. And they're there over the weekend, and they've seen him uh, crucified. They've even heard the report that he's risen from the dead, but they don't believe this. And they've lost hope. And while they're walking along the road to Emmaus, Jesus comes alongside and begins a conversation with them. But they are prevented from noticing that it's him. And um, so they enter into this conversation with him. In the middle of the conversation, Jesus poses a number of questions to them. And in the posing of the questions, they start opening up their hearts. And they don't quite know who he is, but when they reach home, they invite him to have dinner with them, because that's the custom. And this is why I think it's Cleopas and his wife, because they've arrived at home and they're having dinner together. Uh, And then while they're breaking bread, Jesus reveals himself to them, and he disappears from their sight. Well, they pack up, and they they, they go all the way from Emmaus back to Jerusalem, seven miles. It's a long journey to walk. And they go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. It's a classic text that is read on Sunday morning, especially Easter morning. At the heart of it, we see how Jesus reveals himself to us repeatedly. And he did that for me in my life. He'll do it gradually sometimes. He'll do it through a burning in our heart where we have this sense of knowing his presence. He'll do it by opening our eyes. Sometimes he does it first by closing our eyes so that later he can open our eyes. And then we meet him again and again um, in the presence of God walking beside us, in the Holy Scriptures, and then even in breaking bread. So let's look at the passage. Verse 13, Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing as you walk along together? Uh, So here we have these two on this journey, and they're talking. And um, and they're talking about everything that's happened, and then in the text there at verse 16 it says, "But they were kept from recognizing him," and that is a passive tense, were kept. It's called a divine passive, and what it means is that God is the agent who is preventing them from seeing Jesus, and that happens Uh, uh, in my own life. When I was six years old, um, I was living on Milwaukee's east side, just north of Chicago, and we were in this immigrant neighborhood, and um, it was uh, people from uh, uh, German background and French background and Italian background, and all three languages were spoken on the street. Uh, There was one or two American families. There was a nunnery, and there was a wonderful Catholic church, and they were into the charismatic renewal. I only knew that in hindsight, but the nuns were always out there in the streets talking to the immigrant children in our languages. And there was something about these nuns that drew me in, but I I didn't know it was God. And one morning I said to my mother, I would like to go to church. I was six years old, and she said, sure, go. I mean, it was just two blocks away. And at the same time that I was there, I didn't have a sense of who God was. I just had a sense that someone was speaking to me. And Jesus asks these two, "What are you discussing as you walk along together?" And sometimes, uh, when we're on a journey um, and we uh, we don't quite know what to make of how things have unfolded, um, we start talking, and Jesus Himself will uh, question us. Uh, that happened to me after I became a Christian in age 14 um, at the Leighton Ford Crusade and gave my heart to the Lord. Um, In that time, I was really alive in Christ. um, I was in a really good Bible church where a pastor named Stuart Briscoe was the pastor. Now he's kind of a well-known Bible teacher. And um, I learned wonderful sermons. Uh, I'll never forget the Sermon on the Mount I heard, um, Blessed are the poor, and uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I had a lot of poverty in spirit in my soul. And um, so I really identified with that. And yet at the same time, quite frankly, um, as much as I love that church where I first heard the gospel preached, when it came to talking about issues of human sexuality, not just homosexuality, there just was a dead silence. And any time something about human sexuality was mentioned in the scriptures, all we were told was, that's wrong. And there was never any pathway shown in redemption. So, for a 14 year old hearing the gospel for the first time and struggling in my sexual identity, I wasn't hearing any good news. I was hearing everything that was emerging from me was bad. And um, so I lost hope and I walked away from the faith. Now, you have to remember back in the 1970s, there was this you probably weren't even born, most of you, but there was this big push to. to make homosexuality and gay people look like, you know, sexual monsters. And um, so, uh, there were a number of Christians who called themselves the moral majority, and um, they elected themselves to speak for all of America, and, um, and they went on TV and they started addressing homosexuality, and they did it, in my estimation, in a really caustic way. And um, so that's what I was hearing from Christians. Anyone who addressed homosexuality in the public square as a Christian just seemed like a really angry, um, harsh, judgmental person. And um, yet that's not what I was getting from my home church. I never felt judged by Stuart Briscoe or his church. They just It wasn't what they said. It's what they didn't say. No one ever mentioned that there was a way out of homosexuality, ever. And... Um, I heard everything that I needed to know about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and world missions, and that was wonderful. But like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, I lost hope. Uh, And when Jesus, when I started discussing with other people what I was discussing on my own, on, on my journey, how come the church isn't mentioning any of this? You know, I'm kind of struggling with this. And there was hardly anyone I could talk to, quite frankly. This is 1974. So Jesus asks these two disciples, what are you discussing as you walk along together? And remember, they're prevented from seeing that it's Jesus. They don't know who this guy is. Well, they stopped dead in their tracks. Look at verse 17b. They stood still. Suddenly they're not on their journey anymore. They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus says, What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word indeed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I'm going to stop there at the middle of verse 21. So what they're saying is, we thought he was a prophet. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. And so they lost their hope. And I remember when I was 18, I went to university. And by that time, I'd stopped going to church because I hadn't heard anything redemptive about my uh, emerging sexuality um, and here I went to university, at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and I met all these really great gay people. Professors, students, they weren't the sexual monsters, the moral majority had told me that they were. Uh, some of them were very sexually active and promiscuous, yes, um, but so was half the other population of the, of the, uh, of the university. And uh, so it was the 1970s, for heaven's sakes. It was, you know, free love. And everyone was having sex with everyone, and uh, and then I met some gay people who had a really meaningful life. Uh, uh, one professor um, was a lesbian who uh, taught uh, at uh, at another university, and um, she uh, was uh, teaching law, and she was. Giving all free legal services to battered women because she understood what it was to be a woman who had disadvantages in life. And she had a strong witness, and she was a a militant lesbian. But I remember one of the Christians saying, Wow, I don't think I've ever seen anyone in my church give that much time to an organization as she does. She gave free legal counsel to any woman, it was a strong witness. And um, and then I had two professors, and they were homosexual lovers, and they had a marriage, quote unquote, and they seemed to really love each other. They had an open marriage; they could have sex buddies on the side, and um, that's what they didn't call them that; they called it a more crude word. But they were really caring in many ways. Later on, I went to the to Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, and um, and. Quite serendipitously, these two professors were hired at at Tisch at the same year that I was at NYU in the professional actor training program there. And um, so while I was there, uh, they said to me, "Hey, Mario, you're living in New York City. Life is rough here, especially for a young gay man. Whatever you do, don't get sucked into the gay world because you're young and you're handsome, and people will hit on you and use you and spit you out. So be careful." And What you need to do is build a life for yourself and invest in your career and don't let this become the driving force in your life, your gay identity. Just let it be a part of you. And that was really good advice. And um, so, uh, But you see, I started listening to the voices of the world and heard good things there because I had lost hope. And the reason I lost hope is no one ever said anything redemptive to me About coming out of homosexuality, ever. Ever. I mean, I read my Bible every day just like I was told, and I was still gay. So let's look back at the passage. Verse 17. But we had hoped. Well, I did lose hope. And I have to say that I lived in this tension between being a Christian and being gay, and losing hope in Christ was pretty, pretty astounding for me. Um, and I remember realizing, you know, maybe everything I experienced that Leighton Ford crusade, that born-again whole thing, maybe that was just kind of feelings. Maybe it was hype. And so I started to sort of disengage from Christianity. But the problem is I started disengaging from Jesus. And the joy I had in my life and the hope I once had, that started to slip away as well. And I started to adopt sort of the hard ways of the world, you know, the important things to become successful. I was at Tisch School of the Arts. I mean, 700 people auditioned to get in and 40 got in. And so, uh, um, you know, Billy Kudrup has graduated from there. I mean, I would have been a movie star had I stayed in that program. And um, that was my goal in life, to be famous. And, um, and I had this incredible internal shift about what the meaning of life was. It was about me, it was about my success, it was about being good-looking, it was about attracting bedfellows, it was about having a career, it was about looking out for number one, and I was number one. Well, going back to this passage, in addition, they say to Jesus, it's the third day since everything took place since Jesus died on the cross. And some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Well, at the, this is here. here the, Cleopas and his wife have encountered people who've met the risen Jesus. Now they're meeting the risen Jesus, but their eyes are, are prevented from, from, from seeing him. And so they've met the risen Jesus. And, he's, and they're telling him, we have friends who've met the risen Jesus. They went to the tomb. Uh, Acts 10, 40. Uh, but God raised him from the dead, and on the third day, and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. So there were a handful of people that God chose ahead of time. You're going to see the risen Jesus. All right, so some of those witnesses tell Cleopas and his wife, we have seen the risen Jesus. Back in 1974, there were in the early 80s, there were, there were these books out trying to prove the resurrection of Jesus, uh, evidence that demands a verdict, and the empty tomb. And it was all perfect logic. The reason the tomb is empty is because Jesus has risen from the dead. The reason we can say that is that he was such a public figure, they would have made sure they knew where his bones were, that he was so followed, had he only been a human being, there would have been a special grave marker for him so they could uh, commemorate his death and everything he did. So it's all this perfect reasoning. Well, guess what else has perfect reasoning? Zen Buddhism. So I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Zen and the Art of Archery. And if you read Buddhism, it all looks at the forces of nature and and makes a parallel to what we see in nature to to our inner life. And it makes a lot of sense, friends. There's nothing transcendent in Buddhism except one form called Theravada Buddhism. For the most part, Buddhism is how to live in the tensions of this world. And it brings out so much beauty And if you read Buddhism, you start thinking, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Because it makes a lot of sense. Just like a rational argument for the empty tomb makes a lot of sense. But guess what, friends? Rational argumentation is not going to cause anyone to follow Jesus. If that's all we needed, everybody in the world would be a Christian. Now, I'm not speaking against reason. I'm a PhD student at Anglican University in in, in the United Kingdom. I believe in reason. But I don't believe reason is the primary avenue for meeting Jesus. The primary avenue for meeting Jesus is meeting Jesus, which is what's happening to these people on the road to Emmaus. But sometimes, when we try and work it all out in our head, God has to block our eyes and have this conversation with us until we're ready. So he says to them, after they tell him about the empty tomb thing, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophet, he explained to them all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. But you see, even after he does this, he's still not revealed to them. He has opened up the scriptures. Now the scriptures are important and they will show us Jesus in the Old Testament. When it says Moses and the prophets, it means all of the Old Testament. And he says, look, I'm in here. I'm on every page. And he is. Read Psalm 22. I'm sure you did at Easter. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Couldn't be a better prophetic word about about the Messiah. So Jesus shows them, hey, the guy who died was not simply a prophet. He was the Christ. And in entering into the conversation with these two, he's starting to bring them back to faith, but he's not revealing himself to them yet because they're not ready to see him. They still have some sorting out to do. At one point, when I was a student at NYU over Christmas holiday, uh, this friend of mine um, from uh, Temple University came to stay with me, and um, she was in the professional theater program there. And we went to this big party, because NYU and the Juilliard School had this kind of rivalry going. So we went to a party over at the Juilliard School. And, um, and when we came home to my apartment, I noticed that the shades in my house were, were pulled down. That's strange. I knew I left with the shades up. We walked in, and there was a gunman in my kitchen. And he said, get out of here, or I'll blow your blankety-blank head off. So I said, Okay. So I got out of my apartment with my friend Susan Beverly, and we ran out. Uh, I called the NYPD. Um, they said, you know, he's probably gone, so should we really come? I said, uh, well, I don't think he's gone, because there's only one way out the building, is the front door, so uh, I know he's in there. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, I think he's, he probably found another exit. I said, there is no other exit. We have a front door, and we have a fire shaft that goes up seven stories. And unless he's Spider-Man, he's not up there. <laughs> oh, so then the P- NYPD come. They look around. He's not in here. So they do check the basement. It's locked. And I, there was a set of keys on, on the table. I said, he's one of the construction workers. Look, he has a set of keys. That's how he got in my apartment. They said, look, buddy, it's just a stereo. We have a homicide down the street. We need to go. That was it. So my friend Susan said, you know, I think I don't want to stay in your apartment tonight. I'm going to call my friend in uptown. I'm going to stay up there. I said, thanks, Susan. So I didn't know where to stay. So I went to Hell's Kitchen, where I had my uh, friend who lived there. And um, Hell's Kitchen is a neighborhood um, outside uh, uh, Times Square. So I went to Hell's Kitchen. And I'm walking through Times Square. I'm completely devastated. I've just been held up at gunpoint in my living room. My friend, Susan, who was supposedly there to hang out with me for the weekend. I said, forget it. I'm out of here, buddy. And this man comes up to me and he says to me, don't worry, Jesus is still with you. Oh, that spooked me. Then I turned around and I thought, who said that? And the guy just got lost in the crowds of thousands of people that are always in Times Square. So uh, I had a sense, now I know, I feel like Jesus sent that man to me to remind me of that. So let's go back to this story in the text. Cleopas and his wife talking to this, to this guy who tells them about Jesus who is the Christ. And Jesus who shows the Christ in the Old Testament but still isn't revealed to them. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if they were going farther but they urged him strongly stay with us for it's nearly evening the day is almost over so they went in so he went in to stay with them when he was at the table with them he took bread gave thanks broke it and began to give it to them does that sound familiar then their eyes were opened and they recognized him verse 31 then their eyes were open verse 16 But they were kept from seeing him. Just as they were kept is a divine passive, then their eyes were open is a divine active. God is the agent who is opening their eyes. And they recognized him. Now the word recognized in the NID is the word epigenosco. And it means to identify something which is acquired by information which has been previously known. It's like if you see me next week on Boston Common, you're like, hey, you're the guy who spoke in chapel at Eastern Nazarene. You're recognizing me for something that happened today. That's Epigenosco. So, so their eyes were opened, and now they're seeing him as Jesus. And then it says this, and he disappeared from their sight. It's one of these you know, I call them wacky appearances of Jesus after the, the resurrection. You know in, in John 20, the doors are going to be locked, and he's going to come into the room. How does he do that? Does he pick the lock? Does he walk through the wall? You know, that, that sort of metaphysical presence of the uh, resurrected body of Jesus, not yet glorified but risen, does all sorts of strange things, the resurrected body of Jesus in the Bible. He disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when, we talked, when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? See, this is the importance of the Holy Scriptures. This is the importance of those sermons I heard from Stuart Briscoe's pulpit. Every time I heard Stuart Briscoe preached, I had this internal sense that, wow, what he's saying is true. There was an internal burning. I call it holy heartburn. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is true. And I could never get away from the truth of the Holy Scriptures as was presented to me there at Elmbrook Church 35 years ago. And think about that in your own life. Even you coming to a Christian school like this. Somewhere along the line, everyone in this room had this experience of the burning heart in the presence of God. And you've approached God in some way, maybe not completely. Or maybe you have completely approached God and you're a believer. But there's been this internal witness, this burning. And I had that. I had that when I was six years old. And I met those nuns for the first time. And then when I went to that Catholic church for the first time, and the priest, it was all in Latin, but when they sang the Sanctus, I had an overdose of the Holy Ghost. I mean, it was awesome. I was six years old. I'll still remember it. till the day I die. that first time I was in God's presence in church. When Leighton Ford preached the gospel when I was 14 in the Milwaukee Auditorium, that preaching of the gospel, you know, that first time you hear the Bible really preached, it's like, a, it's like a bell going off. In fact, that's why churches have bells. I was like, wow, I've never heard anything like this. And so I went forward and gave my life to Jesus. And so that's, that's that burning. But you see, we can lose hope after that. I lost hope between the ages of 14 and 25. By the time I was 25, I was living here in Boston. Now I'm 51 years old, It's 26 years ago. I was teaching at Boston University. Um, I was acting professionally. I was a voice and speech teacher. People like Michael Chiklis and Rosie O'Donnell were my students. Ethan Hawke was one of my students when I taught at Carnegie Mellon. I had a great career going in the theater. I was living the gay American dream. I had a pile of money. Any time I wanted to go to New York City, I just went into my box of money, went to Boston Logan, got on the Eastern Air Shuttle, and went to NYC for the weekend. I also enjoyed snorting cocaine, I thought it was fun, it gave me a kind of a, a buzz and a cool feeling on my lips, and uh, made me happy for at least two hours. When I wasn't on it, that was kind of a bummer, and uh, made me pretty unhappy, and so, but fortunately I'm not an addictive personality, so I didn't get into that too, too deeply. But by the time I was in my middle 20s, you know what I had seen in the gay community? It was pretty ugly. First of all, everyone who said that they were monogamous same-sex unions weren't. They had open marriages, just like my two university professors who wisely counseled me not to get sucked into the gay community. They all had their sex buddies on the side. They had an open marriage. And what I saw in the gay community, especially here in Boston, but also in New York City, is that it was very youth-oriented. Now, 25 years ago, I worked out. I was 35 pounds lighter. I was buff. But I knew that wasn't going to last forever. And my young gay friends and I, we used to go to a bar right behind uh, uh, the John Hancock Tower for old gays. We called it the Wrinkle Room. Yeah. It's not funny, though, when you're a gay And this is not straight people calling it the wrinkle room. These are young gays calling it the wrinkle room. And my friend Bob and I, because we were in theater, we used to go to those wrinkle rooms and we used to sing show tunes around the pianos. You know, it was kind of like our mission to the aging old queens. But I'm telling you, friends, that world is mean. And it's mean to the people in it. And when I started forecasting where I was going to be in 40 years... It made me pretty depressed because I never saw someone who was 65 and gay who I said, I want to be like that when I'm 65. Never. And I still haven't met anyone who I think is exemplary in that way. I just didn't want to go there. Then something really dramatic happened. I got very sick. I've been active sexually in New York City in my early 20s and here in Boston. It was 1983. There was this new disease out there called opportunistic infections and they were starting to call it acquired immune deficiency syndrome and I had two huge immune breakdowns and then I started getting infections and bruises and night sweats and losing 20 pounds which I couldn't afford to lose at that point. At one point my finger got so infected the infection spread from my nail throughout my entire body and I had 106 degree fever and I landed in Boston City Hospital. They don't call it that anymore but it's there on Mass Avenue. I lived in the, in, the, in the Chickering Piano Factory, which is uh, um, uh, an artist's residence. I had my own voice studio there. And my doctors thought I might have this new disease, but they didn't know how to test for it because their, the HIV test wasn't yet developed. And um, so they said, there's only one thing we can do, Mario, is we have to drill into your pelvis little long, it's not really a drill, it's a big needle, and we will take your marrow out. And if your T-cells are repressed at the level of the marrow, then you are in a pre-AIDS condition. That's the only way we can test for it. I said, okay, fine. And I was going down fast. And that night, before my bone marrow biopsy, I prayed and I said to the Lord, Lord, I did follow you. I did meet you. At the Catholic Church in Layton Ford's preaching at Stuart Briscoe's really good Bible church. What more do I need to do to be a Christian? I'm never going to wear a blue button-down shirt, khakis, and penny loafers. That's just not who I am. But that's what I thought I had to do. I had to dress a certain way to be a, a Christian in the Milwaukee suburbs. That's what it felt like to me. And something miraculous happened. Jesus appeared to me. He said, I want to heal your whole person, not just your sexuality. And then I remember this passage in the Bible about the laying on of hands. So I laid hands on myself and asked Jesus to heal me. I fell asleep then. Right before my bone marrow biopsy, a doctor came in and said, we need to take a blood test to make sure your white cell count is high enough to do this, otherwise you're going to get a terrible infection. So you can do a white blood test count very fast, not a T-cell count, though. So they did a white blood cell count. He came back about 25 minutes later and said, Wow, your white cell count has jumped into the thousands suddenly. He says, "You You might be turning around. You might not need this bone marrow biopsy. Let's wait a day. So they waited a day, and my blood cell count went up. And then my rash went away. Then my fever went away. Then, over the next six months, all my symptoms went away. The thrush, which is a yeast infection in my gums, that went away. And the bruises went away. And I stopped losing weight. And the night sweats went away. And I was spooked. I didn't know what to do, quite frankly. Jesus had appeared to me, He'd answered my prayer. He said to me something I found very confusing. I want to heal your whole person, not just your sexuality. Then my sister sent me this book called The Broken Image by an Episcopal church woman called The Broken Image, one of the first books ever written on Christian response to homosexuality and how, how we can actually see something redemptive. I read this book and I thought it was ridiculous, and I just threw it away. I didn't throw it away. I put it behind a shelf. But then about two months later, I got sick again. And I thought, oh no, I'm coming down with all these symptoms again. And I read this book. And while I read it, I didn't believe most of it, but the part I did believe was this. She said very clearly, everything in the soul has to do with sin and forgiveness. We are shaped by the sins of this world and the sins of others in our sinful responses. And the way out of any trouble in life is to come to the cross of Jesus and ask him, where have the sins of others shaped me? And how am I sinfully responding? And then, once you forgive others or receive forgiveness from Jesus, then you ask the Lord to show you how to be unshaped by those sins, even if that's happened for you over your lifespan. Well, I started praying these little prayers, she said to pray, these forgiveness prayers. Every day, I'd be in the shower, and I'd be, this is my prayer life, I'd be washing my face, you know, and I'd wash my hair, and I'd say, okay, Jesus, who do I need to forgive? And every day it would be my father, because he had sexually abused my mother, my half-sister, he'd verbally abused me, physically abused me, every day I would forgive him. All right, I forgive you, Richard, that's his name. This went on for about six months. Then my job at Boston University ended, and I took a job teaching at Wright State University in Ohio. And during the, the Christmas break, the woman who wrote that book was teaching an adult education course at my sister's school. And I went to this, school, to, this, to this course, and it was on restoring personal wholeness through healing prayer. It wasn't about homosexuality. Before going to that course, I said, All right, Jesus, I'm going to give you a year to see if this healing stuff is, is for real but if it's not I'm going to work something else out later well that was 26 years ago friends and what I found was that I'd been a little harsh on the church just a little quite frankly because the church failed me miserably when it came to my sexuality and as far as I can see the church is still failing a lot of people you have everything from people saying gay is okay to gay might be okay and might not be okay, like Andrew Marin, to you know, all gays are going to hell, like Fred Phelps. And all these people are calling themselves Christians. There is hope in the scriptures. This first Corinthians six, nine through eleven. And it gives us catalog lists of sins. We all fit in there somewhere. And verse eleven, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Finally, friends, after my one-year experiment, it didn't even last a year, wasn't, it was about a month, I came back to the Lord, I realized there's something here I need to keep working on. Every time I would get some kind of despair or lose hope, Jesus would come beside me and move me forward a little bit. I was 25, 26 years old when I left homosexuality. So about 25 years ago now. I stayed in the theater for another three years, then I went to grad school in psychology and in um, theology. And while I was studying to be a professional psychologist, and I'm not a psychologist, I didn't complete my studies, but I did most of them, I was astounded to find how many good psychologists from a secular perspective had treated people coming out of homosexuality all through the 1900s. Lawrence Hatterer, Irving Bieber, Anna Freud, Freud's, uh, Freud's daughter. Charles Succarides. And not once was this even mentioned by the church. I did tons and tons of research, wrote paper and paper after this. And when people said, do you need to be a Christian to come out of homosexuality? I say, no. You just have to be dissatisfied. Psychology has a 65% success rate of helping people come out of homosexuality. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. I started a ministry 20 years ago that helps people people not only come out of homosexuality, but all sorts of things. It's called Redeem Lives. put 2,000 people through our program in Chicago. Only 20% of the people who come to us are dealing with homosexuality. But do the numbers. 20% of 2,000 is 400 people. What about the other 1,600? What are they dealing with? Addiction to pornography? That's big. Infidelity in marriage? That's big. Women with eating disorders, believe it or not, that's a sexual identity disorder. Transsexuality. People who are so afraid of intimacy, they're just not going to get married ever. That's another sexual problem in our society. Children who have been raised in homes where their parents divorced and remarried, divorced and remarried, divorced and remarried. Is it any wonder these children are wondering, do I really want to go into the whole marriage thing? See, most of our society is living in this fallout from the sexual revolution. So it's really not about the gay issue, friends. It's about how Christianity responds to what it means to be a human being and is there good news for the person who struggles in their sexuality, not just homosexuality. I'm a testimony that, yes, there's good news for the person who struggles with homosexuality. But listen, friends, it's not because I'm married and have five kids. I didn't get married until I was 38 years old. Or 37. For 12 years, I was celibate. I was completely satisfied. Had a few struggles, but never wanted to go back to homosexuality. And I could have lived single for the Lord the rest of my life. In fact, sometimes I kind of wish I did that. Uh, But (laughs) most of my problems now has to do with sleep. Uh, I don't get enough of it. Uh, But... uh, uh, but I love my kids, and I'm just kidding there. Finally, the road to Emmaus. Let me close with this. You see, what happens to Cleopas and his wife is they realize Jesus has been there with him all along, with them all along. I realize that in hindsight, friends. He was there. He was there when I was six in the Roman Catholic Church. He was there when I was 14 in the Latin Ford crusade. He was there when I was 22 years old in New York City in Times Square after I'd been held up at gunpoint. He was there at 25 when I was in Boston City Hospital thinking I was dying of AIDS. He was there. That's the important thing, friends. He's there. Even if you can't see him, he's there. And sometimes the reason you can't see him, you just have too many questions. And he just needs to answer them before he lets you see him so ask your questions even if you don't think he's there but he's there and if you keep in the conversation you'll get through your hopelessness and you'll do what Cleopas and his wife and what I've done they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying it's true the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Ah, here's the word recognized again, but it's not epigenosco. Oh, I remember you from last week. It's the Greek word norizo. It means made known in a supernatural way. It means revealed. See, Jesus is revealed to them after they've had this conversation with the hidden Jesus after they've opened their hearts to him, after they've broken bread, after they've looked in the scriptures, after they've known he's been walking with them, then He is revealed to them. So it's not a rational argumentation that's going to convince you friends, or me, my testimony. Jesus will reveal himself to you. And he won't do it just once to get you converted. He'll do it again in your life, in your walk with him when you lose hope in Him. Because we do that, and I've done that. I've done that since. But He'll reveal Himself to you as He has to me again and again. I think Pastor Corey would like to close in prayer. At 12 o'clock today in the President's dining room, Mario is willing to have uh, lunch with you. If you have any more questions, we'll be there uh, in the President's dining room at noon today to ask any questions. You'd like you are dismissed. Go in peace.